Welcome to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. You're listening to the Power in the Pandemic podcast. I'm your host, Maria. Throughout the upcoming weeks and months, PowerShift's project is partnering with the Oxfam In-Depth podcast to share the experiences of people living through the coronavirus pandemic. Just because the entire world was under a lockdown doesn't mean that the climate change or the patriarchy was on lockdown too. And that's something that's been very common here. You know, the patriarchy is not on lockdown. Climate change cannot be contained. In today's episode, we'll hear from Betty Barca, a climate activist from Latuka in the Fiji Islands, whose voice you heard at the very start. Betty's especially interested in the gendered impacts of climate change-induced displacement and planned relocation in the Pacific, which she's currently researching in her PhD at Monash University in Australia. Previously, she's also worked with the Asia-Pacific Forum on Women, Law and Development in Thailand. She's now on the board of directors for the Civicus Alliance and the Association of Women in Development, which is AWID, as well as an advisor to Frida Young Feminist Fund and the Global Resilience Fund for Women and Girls in response to COVID-19. So let's travel to where Betty's from, the Fiji Islands in the Pacific, which are particularly prone to flooding and cyclones. Many island nations in the Pacific face losing absolutely everything to sea level rise, increased intensity of tropical cyclones, saltwater intrusions, coastal erosion, changing rain patterns, submersion of islands, and ocean acidification, which represent everyday fears. For these island nations, climate change is more than a political concern. It's rapidly leading to extinctions of people, lands, and a way of life. In one of the biggest examples of environmental injustice in the world, the Pacific region is extremely vulnerable to the climate crisis, despite contributing minimally to global greenhouse gas emissions. So let's start hearing Betty talk about what she calls an island mentality that is used to handle the crisis, especially referring to the ways in which people deal with the ever-looming threat of losing their homes, through humor, through folk songs, and more recently through social media. And with the impacts of climate change, there's also this sense of like, okay, it's come and gone. And so <laughs> my family constantly makes jokes about it. And the cleanup campaign has now become a ritual. And I think that's very much an islander mentality around handling a crisis with humor, which is how people get through it. And um, I realize it's not just my family thing. It's, it's also a community thing. Everybody on, on social media tries to use a different sense of humor to cope with this crisis. Yeah, I think that's um, definitely been key. The climate crisis is not some distant, faraway future in Fiji and the Pacific as a region. It's been a reality for a very long time. And the urgency of this reality is what spurred Betty to join the climate justice movement and find ways in which to make climate activism much more impactful. I think it was 2009, and we were at a a regional convening of climate change leadership. So this was very new. Um, um, the Pacific Young, uh, 350 Pacific was organizing a young leaders training for about a week. Um, and so they brought, they brought about 50 to eight, I think it was 50 leaders from across the region to a place in Fiji. And I had applied because it, it looked interesting. And I was just, you know, joining the social movement scene. I was a young, you know, very excited activist just starting up uni. So it's been 10 years, and Betty has worked and advocated on national, regional, and global platforms since then. But the most interesting insights are in the forms of activism and leadership that work on the islands themselves. 
especially the success with working alongside religious leaders, who are some of the most trusted people by locals because they actually stay, while others, such as NGOs and other actors, end up leaving eventually. Let's listen to the ways in which allying with religious and community leaders can help ingrain a feeling of local ownership over climate justice plans and initiatives. And, and this goes into the, my work with APWLD, really. I, I saw that participatory action research really worked well in terms of connecting evidence to action and allowing people to take ownership of their own problems and taking leadership around what needs to get done. But that's a huge investment as it is. I think in the Pacific context, there's been a lot of movements with religious actors, really, whereby religion is a huge deal in the Pacific. And uh, we're, we're, we're blessed with some uh, very progressive feminist uh, pastors as well who are taking leadership around uh, balancing religion and climate justice and actually women's rights issues into particular programmatic areas and then delivering sermons on that, that has been incredibly successful. So I think working at the, on the intersections of these actors, not just, with, not just with community leaders, but with religious leaders, and in particular for my uh, research, which is on planned relocation and displacement, religious leaders are actually considered more prominent than government leaders or donors because because community members feel that religion will always be there for them, but government people will come and go. And, and so I was once told in a very, very polite way that you people come and go, but religious people always stay, which is why we tend to trust them more. And so that's been a very key actor in terms of engagement. But it also just helps with the ownership. I think in time, as things are evolving, as as I mentioned, that not, not only are women taking leadership, it's also as a larger community, Pacific Islanders are be- becoming more aware of their own voices, are taking lead in like what we want instead of being driven by donors or international actors. And so it's no longer about dictating what needs to be done or like, how about you do this? No, it's like, no, we know what to do. If you're willing to be a part of this, that's great. But, you know, we're no longer going to be pushed around. And that's a growing narrative in the, in, in, in like not just the civil society space, but in the larger space as, as the whole. This final point on the immense importance of including and valuing local knowledge is becoming a pattern which repeats itself across this series of climate, COVID and care. At the end, it's those who know their homes and who are at the front lines of climate-induced impacts who should also be at the forefront of decision-making around climate policies and initiatives. But something which I found particularly interesting in Betty's own experience and analysis is how she conceives of what she calls the climate justice ecosystem, which is essentially a large web of sorts with different actors, including civil society organizations, NGOs, grassroots movements, governments, and local leaders playing a part. And looking at the larger system of actors also allows us to move away from very simple narratives that place sole responsibility for action and solutions on one player, for example, governments, which in this case in the Pacific find themselves with very limited capacity in each of the islands. And this then becomes an invitation to move away from very siloed, reductive thinking that breaks up themes and expertise in very technocratic ways into more systemic thinking that sees distributed responsibility and that focuses on opportunities for collaboration and allyship. 
Let's turn now to Betty's own analysis to hear what she has learned about the role of feminist grassroots organizations in particular and the role that they play in this justice ecosystem. I think, and, and this is something we talk about a lot in the feminist movement when I was very active in the feminist movement before academia, and it's about the role you play in the ecosystem, right? And so I think grassroots community-based organizations have their role to play in, in the ecosystem. And then there's organizations like Oxfam that help facilitate these conversations and help connect the dots. Um, they work with academia and, you know, there is, you, let's be real, there is a certain level of technical expertise that is needed at different levels. We can't expect community-based organizations to be following UN negotiations and be able to understand what it means. And which is where larger organizations help connect the dots, not only in translating and making it more accessible to the community, but also getting this sort of feedback and, you know, evidence we need from what is happening on the ground and be able to feed it vice versa where policy and decisions are being made. So I think it, it's about the role you play in this ecosystem. It has to be very targeted. It has to be very, you know, focused and very pragmatic around what needs to be done. I think the role in the ecosystem methodology is very important for us to, to understand going forward. I think it's, it's about knowing that it's still a net, it's a web or whatever you call it, a web of, but we need each other to survive, but it's not about being in silos. So these are not separate ecosystems. This is one large ecosystem and the failure of one leads to, you know, a particular downfall of the other. So this COVID-19 crisis is a prime example of systemic failure, and climate change essentially is a threat multiplier. How can safety protocols and public health measures such as lockdown be compatible with losing your home due to flooding, or physical distancing be compatible with the reality of crammed evacuation centers? So even though the Pacific Islands have had very limited cases of COVID-19, they have felt the effects of these multiplied crises very strongly, particularly women and girls. Betty talks about women's care work being overloaded, domestic violence hotlines saturated with increased cases of abuse, and access to reproductive health services very limited. While the Pacific Islands is one of the is, are some of the few countries that are still COVID-free, there are some confirmed cases in, say, Fiji and Papua New Guinea and um, Guam. But um, just because the entire world was under a lockdown doesn't mean that the climate change or the patriarchy was on lockdown too. And that's something that's been very common here. You know, the patriarchy is not on lockdown. Climate change cannot be contained. And lives were lost, um, even though people were locked down. And so when uh, Tropical Cyclone Herald hit in March in Vanuatu and Fiji and Tonga, people's homes were blown away. And you were required to be physically or socially distancing. But how can you do that when you've got no home and evacuation centers will be crammed? And so it's very complicated, but it also just reiterated the fact that climate change is a threat multiplier. And so, and this is exactly what climate activists and scientists have been talking about, that if another threat were to come, it will be devastating. And it is. And so... I, I think that was it, that wasn't a moment of realization for any of us. We knew it was coming. We just weren't prepared for it. And as always, women were the worst hit with with this double crisis situation, whereby they were locked in with their abuses. Um, in Fiji, I think they said that the they re the crisis center received about 
the same number of calls that they receive in over a year within the last, you know, four to five weeks. Access to modern day contraceptives was limited. So people couldn't access SRHR services. Women's care work was overloaded. Not only in Fiji, but in the Pacific, women are primary caretakers and the care burden is extremely high here. But it's also that it's not just about nuclear families. Fijian and Pacific Islander families are largely extended families. So the issue of social distancing and care work is very, very complicated here. It's about handling this double crisis. With Pacific Island economies, we're already fragile as it is. Our infrastructure can't cope with a cyclone, let alone, you know. Our health infrastructure wasn't uh, detailed enough. We had to really redefine the way health systems work. And these health systems are already overworked, like we're understaffed. So I think it was just burdening existing systems. And as across the world, it brought to attention exactly where all the where all the gaps were and what needed to um, what needed to be done. The human security aspect of it, I think even the countries that are that have no confirmed cases of COVID are still affected by these uh, lockdown measures. So a lot of the Pacific countries rely on tourism for an income or remittance, you know, remittances from their foreign working migrant uh, family members. The migrant family members have lost jobs or have had like reduced hours, which means there's a loss of income, which means remittances are low. And then this is also a double-edged sword. And this is very, in, in Fiji, it's very prominent, whereby not only are women on the, on the forefront of the battle, so not only are they cleaners and nurses in the hospitals, but they're also the, the first people that have been let go in the hospitality sector from hotels. And so it, it really has been very, very uh, complicated. And in some cases, with these loss of livelihoods, for younger women particularly, they've had to now start relying on their partner's income, which has led to like a reduced sense of, you know, their self-esteem and their mental health is being affected through this whole process where their sense of independence and freedom is being taken away and they're being relying on someone. It's a really tremendous reality that the multiple effects of this pandemic are burdening existing systems, which in many cases were already very fragile. And this has starkly cast attention to all the cracks in there. It's also highlighted the urgency of zooming our gaze out of the short-term emergencies and work steadily on the longer-term vision for climate justice. So following this exercise of zooming out, if we want to call it that, what has this collision of COVID and climate violence, along with their differentiated effects on women and girls, brought about for the climate justice movement? I think it's also brought to attention the whole conversation around climate justice. And as much as we would want, I think it's always been about holding those who are most responsible accountable for it. But it's also about shifting the narrative from the blame game into figuring out ways of working together. Because now more than ever, we really need to forge these partnerships that can actually result in tangible, sustainable action. And so accountability is clearly not happening anytime soon, but what else? What else are the mechanisms around working um, working for sustainable change? And, and this is very clear, I, I guess, and I constantly say this because the Pacific Islands contribute less than 1% for global climate, you know, carbon emissions, but they're at the forefront every single time. Only when somebody hears a story from the islands, they'd be like, oh, you know, my heart is broken. But 
it's it's very much a reality it happens day in day out and i think we need to it has to be two tier it has to be short term and immediate but it also has to consistently be about the longer term sustainable solutions so it can't be one or the other we have to figure out a way to make them both work been listening to the mini series on climate covid and care in partnership with the zine published on august 24th you'll find links to the zine and more about betty and her work with the civicus alliance awid frida's young feminist fund and the global resilience fund for young women and girls in the episode description below after hearing betty i also hope you go away resonating with what pacific islanders mean when they say that there's no climate justice without gender justice The imbalances of power that unevenly distribute climate risks can be found across lines of gender as well as race, clan, caste, heritage, nationality, ethnicity, age, and many, many more. And all of these structures are relevant in the context of the climate crisis, which exposes patriarchy's fatal implications, now even more brutally in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has further inflamed gender injustices. And Betty's reminder to see ecosystems as opposed to siloed issues is also a great tool to always keep in mind in order to shift narratives around change and justice. There's just no way to achieve one without the rest. Next week we'll be releasing another episode from this series through our podcast channel as well as our Power Shifts Project Instagram. Make sure you stay tuned and follow us on Instagram under Power Shifts Project. Also, if you like the Power in the Pandemic podcast, you'll probably like the Equals podcast. Equals is a podcast about finding hope in the fight against inequality. It features exciting intellectuals, activists, and political figures fighting inequality on different fronts, be it racism, tax dodging, and sexist economics. Just search Equals on your favorite podcast app. They've got two seasons out already and will be launching the next one at the end of September. Thanks for listening. <laughs>